Welcome to the Money Advantage Podcast, empowering business owners with the permission to think differently about money so that you can consciously choose to live a meaningful and fulfilled life now. Our passion is making money simple, fun, and doable, helping you feel great about your money and getting your money working for you so you can thrive. Good morning, and welcome back to the Money Advantage Podcast. This is Rachel Marshall and my co-host, Bruce Weiner, along with special guest today, Richard Wilson. So before I kick us off into the show, I wanted to say welcome, Richard. Thank you for joining us again on the Money Advantage. Sure. Thanks for having me. I appreciate it. Awesome. Well, Bruce, thank you so much for, as well, just being part of this conversation. And I think we've had Richard on twice before. First, we talked about this was probably four years ago now, how to invest like the wealthy. We're kind of reiterating some of those same themes here today, but having a fresh conversation with four years of experience under all of our belts and just being able to bring this back to the surface on our podcast. And then we talked about family values and how important that is. Richard, that was a hundred episodes ago. I'm not even sure. I think it was about two and a half years. So it's been a while. Yeah, yeah, for sure it has. Today, we're going to talk about investing like a billionaire. And if you are listening today because you're wanting to get investment ideas and advice and tips and strategies from people who are doing the biggest work and being the most successful, this is exactly where you want to be today. You want to be listening in because today we're talking with Richard Wilson. He's the CEO and founder of the Family Office Club, and that is the number one largest association of over 3,000 registered ultra-wealthy families and their family offices. So for context here, Richard has helped create and formalize 100-plus family offices and counts a shark from Shark Tank, several billionaires, many REITs, and 500-plus investors with an average net worth of $28 million as his clients. So he's working with clients through InvestorClub.com and Doctors Investor Club, where he helps them access top-screened direct investments. He's He has an 18-person team, and they're operating multiple media platforms, including Dentist Investors, LLC, InvestorResidences.com, Billionaires.com, and CommercialRealEstate.com. So uh, a host of information that we're going to be able to share and unpack today. But I just wanted to give you, if you're listening, just some context for why this conversation is so extremely valuable. So Richard, before we dive completely into the conversation today. Can you just talk a little bit about your work and the types of families and investors you work with? Sure. So at the high end, our most active client is a billionaire that we've closed 17 investments with. Um, We're talking with him just about every day, uh, him and his team. Uh, Our smallest investors might just be worth, you know, two, three million dollars um, one of our most active investors is a 15 million net worth family, and they're one of our favorite families to work with. They're like super nice people. Uh, I've done many deals with them. And um, probably another of our most active investors is a 250 million plus net worth family. So a lot of families come to us when they have a liquidity event or when they're earning seven figures and they want to put into practice family office best practices, things that people have learned after they've been ultra wealthy for seven or 10 years. You know, professional athletes and people that win the lottery typically are bankrupt or worth less five to seven years after they're done playing or after they've won the lottery because they became wealthy too quickly and they didn't learn all the little lessons along the way. Well, the same is true when someone has a liquidity event or when somebody starts making a lot of money, all of a sudden they learn things the slow way and it can be painful. But if you have enough wealth or continuance of wealth coming in, 
um, then you can learn things. But the faster you learn them, then the more you're going to be able to guard your wealth and diversify who you're trusting your money with and put put into place smart strategies that are for your own um, benefit and not just because the service providers around you, you know, sold you this or sold you that, uh, et cetera. So I think that those are the types of families we typically work with. A lot of them like cash flow. They like consistency. They like hitting, you know, doubles versus trying to swing for home runs. Um, and a lot of them are medium to very long-term minded and how they do their investments. And a lot of them don't want to put all their money into the stock market and just trust a wealth advisor after being an entrepreneur and building all their wealth over 10 or 20 plus years. It doesn't make sense to them just hand it over to a Goldman Sachs and just, you know, cross your fingers. They don't lose your money. A lot of them just give um, percentage to that and then kind of break down their portfolio in other ways we could kind of get into later in the, the interview, perhaps. I love what I'm hearing. And Bruce, I'm sure you and I are both um, thinking on the same wavelength here. You know, if you're listening, you probably have the exact same goals. And I just want to highlight this for a moment. You mentioned long-term focus. You mentioned having control, not just trusting your money to someone else and hoping they're going to work everything out in your best interest. You mentioned having a for lack of a better word, a a guidance system internally to know what to invest in, not just to trust someone else's advice because they're pitching something that sounded really good and you just want to trust them, but instead having a set of standards for yourself to know exactly where you should be investing, what's the best investment strategy for you. You mentioned guarding, that's protecting your wealth and making sure that you're in a position that your wealth can grow because it's protected. Just so many beautiful things that we could unpack and pull out but those are the same focuses that anyone who's listening has. And so it's uh, it's amazing how congruent that is across people who truly want to take control and become wealthy if they're on that path already. Right, right. Yeah, so, I totally agree. Yeah, so Rachel, one of the things that I, I've noticed as I continue to participate in masterminds, and the latest one was with Steve Sims, who we've had on the podcast. And Steve, you know, started as being a concierge to... Uh, multi-millionaires and, and billionaires. His most most famous one is Elon Musk, and uh, I mentioned him because he's in the he's in the news all the time. Um, but when I when I go to these these masterminds, he actually has billionaires speak to the forty people in the room. And what I've noticed, and I and I'm asking this question for Richard too, if he notices the same thing. What I noticed with really high net people, not just billionaires, but hundreds of millions, uh, hundreds of millions of millionaires is that they are lifelong learners and they're not, they're not the brash type of flamboyant people with a lot of energy. They actually are very uh, pensive and they actually listen and they choose who they listen to very, very carefully. They're always learning lifelong learners. And I think that is probably why they're able to amass the kind of wealth they are because they're learning from every single situation because they know a 1% mistake can mean a lot of money in that situation. And that's why, you know, E3 in St. Louis, we actually started our family office model for people who are working up to uh, having their own family office because uh, those kind of people know that if you make just one uncalculated mistake, when you have a lot of money, that it actually that mistake costs you a lot of money. But so lifelong learners, Richard, is what I find to be a common thread amongst people that uh, have a lot of wealth. Do you find that also? 
Yeah, for sure. Uh, and poor Charlie's almanac, you know, Charles Munger is kind of the right-hand man of Warren Buffett and have been together forever since the beginning. And um, he talks about how over your life to be successful, you need to collect a hundred plus mental models of things that work for your industry. And you might try on an idea from someone and maybe it doesn't work well for you or your business or not right now. And you might use that model later. And several times in my business, I've seen a model that I wanted to use sometime and I might use it three to five or seven years later. But when I see a really smart model, I'll take note of that. And then I'm, I'm collecting these models and stacking them on top of each other. And that's really how I grow my business. And uh, if you think about a group of MBA students who don't know a lot yet or business startups that are part of a business startup club or incubator somewhere, who would they like to learn from? Well, it'd be somebody who has a successful business with millions of dollars in revenue or tens of millions of dollars in revenue. It's a very logical thing. Um, even if they never get to tens of millions of revenue, it might help them get to millions of revenue because there's so many best practices that people learn along the way and they don't stop doing those smart things once they become successful. They might hire people around them to execute on some of them, but they keep the strategies that work and discard things that don't. And so the same is true with billionaires. It doesn't matter if you don't want to work uh, as hard as it may take to become worth a billion dollars or a hundred million dollars, but seeing how billionaires uh, work and seeing what they do leaves you clues to how to become worth $10 million, perhaps. You know, so it's a similar type of thing. And so for for this year, what I've been doing is only listening to audible books and only um, watching videos on YouTube and listening to podcasts uh, from billionaires exclusively. And so most people, I think, go through the whole year and they might, you know, read an article on Elon Musk, but how many times are they actually reading a book from Elon Musk that he's written, right? Or an interview with him directly. Um, he's quoted so much in the press now, he's the one exception, but otherwise people might only hear from three to five billionaires over the whole year. And so what we're doing at billionaires.com is publishing video interviews of billionaires or speeches they've given. We've identified 700 of them so far. And every week we put, put out new content on there for free. And then we're interviewing billionaires ourselves to put together a billionaire strategies kind of resource book or resource guide. But um, that educational component is really important. And, you know, I just think by studying billionaires at this level, that there'll be a couple of ideas that we can really hold on to and, and scale our business uh, just from kind of watching them and, and listening to them very carefully. Hey, Rachel, before, you, uh, before we go to the next, like, yeah. can I just piggyback on this? Uh, you know, a lot of people, uh, you, made, you brought a really good point because a lot of people see it overwhelming. They want to build wealth and build wealth, but they don't realize not only the time commitment, but the energy that that they have drawn out of them trying to protect the wealth, make sure that they're not taken advantage of, you know, so on and so forth. So a lot of people say, well, I don't even want to, I don't want to even have a lot of uh, wealth like that because I don't want the, 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 the continue with the strategies even because it's energy draining. Um, so what, what happens then I think is people then use that as a, as an excuse to not even build, like you said, uh, Richard, in, into like the ten the ten million dollar net worth or the twenty million dollar net worth, because they they get overwhelmed in that situation. But right. really, you can just simply use the same kind of strategies, but pick the time and energy that you want to build that. Because you know you, you do look at some of the family offices that I've been involved with, and. Uh, you know, there are they are constantly traveling. They're constantly meeting people. They're constantly putting deals together. 
and uh, not even knowing if those deals are going to be successful. They they have enough they have enough uh, experience to believe they're going to be successful, but they don't know that they're going to be successful. So that is a very that's a very good point about uh, uh, learning from billionaires, even if you don't think you're going to become a billionaire. Right. Right. Well, yeah, and there's maybe, a huge. Yeah. Go ahead, Richard. I was say maybe maybe it doesn't really matter if the end result is you become a billionaire, but just becoming more effective, more successful. Every hour of energy you put in, you get more out of it. That's what what everyone is looking for. Whether you want to work three hours a day and be worth three million dollars, and that's your goal, or work three hours a day and be worth a hundred million dollars, or become a billionaire. Everyone's looking for how do you get more out of every hour you spend, right? And that just comes down to being a better person and figuring out how to be the best version of you. I was listening to a fascinating podcast by Rabbi Daniel Lapin, who interviewed the author of a book called Soul Construction. And this idea that we don't need to just work to become better for an end goal, but for the purpose of being our best self. And as a result of being the best, most effective, most disciplined most noble, best leadership, self-leading person that we can be, that has the overflow of attracting the right people to work on the same projects that we're working on and being effective in business and having a higher income, which again is a very noble goal because you have to interact and have exchange of trade with someone that you're providing value to in order to become and create that wealth in the first place. And so this is just a another additional offshoot or almost a, a side part of becoming the best version of yourself to become as wealthy as possible. I love right. that you focused on those best practices that anyone can implement. It's not just saying, I have to wait until I have that net worth level or that income level to act that way. But if you start stepping into your best version of yourself as a result, you're going to make more income. Yeah. And some people say like, oh my gosh, all this talk about money. It's so evil. Um, you know, is that all you care about is money? And, you know, if you have money, then you can buy yourself time and just volunteer at the soup kitchen if you want to, or if you want to make an impact on the world and you need resources. So you can take someone who's half as passionate, but has twice the resources and they're going to make, they're going to get more done. Um, so some people have this negative, you know, connotation when it comes to talking about making a lot of money or they automatically in the media, if you make a lot of money, you're evil. People are referred to as evil billionaires. Um, so that's why we had, um, Jeff Hoffman speak at our 950 person family office investor summit at the end of last year. Um, you know, we had 58 speakers on stage and we've had a thousand speakers on stage over the last decade. And he was the best speaker we've ever had, but he's also a great spokesperson for white Caucasian, you know, wealthy males, because we're often portrayed as the most evil things on planet earth. But he says, there's nothing wrong or shameful of having a lot of money. It's just shameful if you don't do anything good with it. So he, he gave example after example of everything he did with his wealth and the average person in our room is probably a 55, 58 year old male and half of the room was crying during this talk, mm. which doesn't usually happen at an investment conference. Um, and so, you know, I think that people need to get that out of their minds, right? More resources means you can do more good. And like you choose whether to do something good or bad with a tool, but if you have no tools, then you're just sitting there complaining about the world and not making an impact on it. Beautifully said. And it's amazing. As you mentioned, the, the visceral nature of that conversation and how pervasively it affects all of us. I mean, you're talking about people who 
are wealthy and yet still wrestling with that mind game of somehow I shouldn't be pursuing this. And I think there's just so much truth to recognizing that the best way you can fully develop yourself is to become of utmost service to others. And that produces wealth in your life. And if you say, well, I don't need to become wealthy, really behind that is saying, well, I don't need to figure out how to develop the raw materials of my life that I've been given to serve others best. And that's inherently a selfish outlook on life to say, well, I don't need to be as influential and as effective as I can possibly be. So I'm going to look up that interview, Jeff Hoffman. That was, that's profound. So yeah, we have a a free uh, way for people to stream it. They just go to billionaires.com and go to insights at the top. You'll see Jeff Hoffman is the number one uh, video featured um, on the website there. So anyone who wants to watch that talk, uh, they can do so. And it's, um, you can, for any of the talks on billionaires.com, you can speed it up to 1.5 or 1.7 times. So it doesn't take the full hour to watch it in case anyone's worried about having the time to do so. Wonderful. I love that you're providing so much value and wisdom and resources in just such a profound and accessible way. Thank you for doing that. And thank you for offering everyone to go check out that interview. So Richard, let's dive into what are you seeing? I think maybe a bridge to what are some of the billionaire investment strategies as we were talking about money and the feelings about money in general. Can you just talk about maybe the way that you see billionaires showing up in the world that isn't that evil rich guy right, way of right, being? Yeah, sure. Happy to. So um wrote down a few notes here before we started, but one is a expectation of excellence. They want to hold people accountable and they expect their team members to be excellent. And when they're not, they call them out on that and have key performance indicators. And they have a very high level of expectation. You know, Steve Jobs, Bezos, Elon Musk, a lot of these entrepreneurs are hard driving and very big work ethic and they expect the best. And so they don't put up with people around them that aren't uh, excellent. Um, One other thing is the level of work ethic to become a billionaire. All of them talk about either loving their work or kind of working nonstop when they're not doing the other things they love to do or working with family, et cetera. And they're always evolving and learning. And when you can, you know, put in, you know, 10, 12 hours a day, plus pay attention to your health and family, et cetera. um, But you're not streaming Hulu, you know, for an average two and a half hours, like the average American uh, you're not watching, you know, football for three hours every weekend. Um, maybe you're not doing, you know, 18 holes in the golf course, et cetera. And instead you're working on the business. Um, then you can uh, get ahead both with smarter ideas, but also that work ethic combined. A lot of them do have that really deep work ethic. Um, a lot of them start out with ideas that scale to a billion dollars plus from the very beginning. Uh, one of the audible books I listened to was uh, the Home Depot it's called Built from Scratch uh, book. It's on Audible, really good. And it talks about how when they opened their first store, they intended to scale it to a thousand stores. Um, I also have a client who's worth a billion dollars and he doesn't do any new project or new platform unless he thinks it can scale to a billion dollars. He doesn't partner with anybody unless they can buy a billion dollars worth of real estate, uh, et cetera. And a lot of billionaires set out with doing something like Steve Schwarzman, when they launched their first fund after starting their business, 
they aim to raise a billion dollars and it would have been normal to raise $50 million or $100 million, but they aimed high uh, from the very beginning. So that is something. Um, and then there's many different ways of getting it done. Um, different skill sets, different industries, different strategies. There's no one way or one strategy that they became ultra wealthy. Some of them had their wind at their back on the timing, but 400 other competitors also had the wind at their back. Um, and it comes down to your unique industry and opportunity. So I think that what I enjoy most about watching the billionaires is I get to pick out the ones who I can relate to most. And I really see, oh, okay, well, that is the type of thinking I like to do in my business. And now I don't feel like it's totally wrong because here's an example of someone who became a billionaire with that type of thinking. And it's very abnormal thinking. And a couple of examples of that is uh, Richard Branson and Steve Schwarzman. They both have um, an ability to have a vision, architect it, and they have partners they work with um, for their different divisions. And they put them in charge of those different divisions and they're not held back by, oh, I'm in the concrete business or I'm in the conference business. And that's very much like my business platform with multiple divisions, but we have a managing director head of each division. And um, Richard Branson has several very famous books people know about. Uh, Steve Schwarzman's book I read recently um, was called How, How It's Done. Uh, and that's one of my favorite books that I've read from a, a billionaire this year because of that. It's just very helpful to collect mental models from multiple billionaires. You might use a little bit here, a little bit there, but then might find one or two really inspirational. So I'll stop there. But those are some of the top ideas that you know, I've taken away from this process so far um, that maybe would be helpful for some people to hear. I like what I'm hearing. You're talking about a way of operating and a value system that is excellent. I mean, you start with the word excellence and that expectation of excellence. You can't expect excellence of other people if you're not calling yourself to that personal excellence as well, that self-leadership, that ability to become your best and not, not go through life with excuses or ways of operating that you're not proud of. And I love that this is value-centric. You're focused on having a high value system. And from these billionaires that you're looking at, you said expectation of excellence, the worth ethic, starting by aiming high with ideas that scale and um, that perspective then makes you become better. If you think of about creating something that could scale to a billion dollars from the beginning, you're going to have to develop your capabilities much more than if you only shot for a hundred thousand dollar business. Right. Right. Yeah. You could, uh, it's better to aim for the stars, you know, uh, and hit the barn than aim for the barn and hit the mud. <laughs> you know, So that's, um, I think that's an important insight. And, you know, since starting this process, we've came up with our first billion dollar idea that we don't know if it will scale, but it, at least it could scale to a billion dollars. And before I just wasn't thinking that way, but between being around my clients and then building out this platform now, it's just kind of changed my thinking on at least getting business models that could scale to a billion dollar balance sheet, uh, even if it doesn't make your net worth a billion dollars, or maybe it would at the same time. Um, and that's just kind of a different mindset to think of that at least if it's scalable at that level, then it's surely scalable to 10 million or 100 million um, in size. You know, I'm hearing a lot of Dan Sullivan's thinking in inside of that as well, this idea that you have to grow to become something different. If you 
think about scaling 10 times what you're currently doing. Rather, it's almost easier because you have to change everything. You can't just become incrementally better. You have to think completely different from the current strategies you've been using to 10x your business versus 2x. Right, right. Yep, for sure. So what are some of those strategies, the investing strategies that you're seeing among billionaires that are maybe a common thread or something that is uniting them that we can all look at and say, this would be an ideal or a a mental model that could be ideal for me to choose if I want to think expansively? Sure. I think the the three things I see them using most uh, would be uh, choke points, platforms, and funnels. And I feel like if you can master the use and, you know, you can do a full day workshop on just building a marketing funnel or an investor funnel, uh, same that goes with choke points, same that goes with building a platform business. But those are the three most powerful ideas I see billionaires using. And we always try to talk and think in those terms. Um, and so if you want, maybe I can just go through each one real quick. Yeah, please do. Sure. So um, a choke point is something that once you acquire it, it lowers your costs or increases your momentum. It hopefully solves the number one bottleneck in your business. And by definition, by you owning that choke point, it's very hard for someone else to also own it or displace you once you have that position. An example could be simply a nonprofit organization that's full of investors that are very well qualified for a trust and estate planning firm. And you get in there, you become a member. After a couple of years, you volunteer to lead the group. And as long as you keep on doing a good job being the president of the nonprofit, which might not take a ton of your time, or maybe it does, then it'd be hard to displace you. And now you have access to all of those relationships inside of that nonprofit. Another example would be us buying, you know, billionaires.com, or um, we have built and grown uh, social media groups with 1.4 million members. And now that we have that position, you know, it's harder to displace us because we have that that asset. And so the best choke points would be ones where you think about what's slowing down my business, what slows down all of our competitors, and then acquiring that. And this came from a book called Mastering the Rockefeller Habits. And Rockefeller became the wealthiest person in the world in his time, not by being an oil tycoon, um, because there was hundreds of oil tycoons that were worth millions of dollars each. But he rose above that because he saw the bottleneck was Uh, getting access to the barrels that he would need to transport his oil. So he started buying a barrel company. And then it was the biggest barrel company in that region. So he raised the prices on other people, gave himself all the barrels he needed. Um, Then he bought other barrel companies and monopolized the whole barrel company space. But when he was competing against barrel companies in Europe and around the world and a couple holdouts in the United States, he saw that they were all fighting for one thing, which was a bottleneck in their business. And that was the oak wood to make the barrels. So he started buying up all the oak groves and he was the largest largest oak grove owner uh, in the United States and owned a lot in Europe as well. So he would stop selling oak to the other barrel companies and have them sell their business to him instead, or just make it very hard for them to get access to the oak. Um, And then he figured out long-term that he could dry the oak, take the water out of the wood and make his barrels a lot lighter, which saved him a lot of transportation costs. And so all of that allowed him to become the wealthiest person in the world. It wasn't just getting good at, you know, refining oil. Um, and so that, that I think is, those are good examples of choke points. And some choke points are free and they just take hard work, you know, like having the number one podcast in a niche or something like that. Um, and then other choke points could be um, moderately expensive, like 
um, buying an expensive domain name and others might be very expensive. Um, but most people listening to this can't afford to spend a lot of money on acquiring choke points. So need to look for some that don't cost um, a lot of money. Do you have any questions about choke points before I go on to the next idea? I think that's really a helpful um, description. I've heard you talk about this before. And, and basically, you talk about as well buying up the supply chain that feeds your particular industry. And I love the example you use with the Rockefellers. I, I did not realize that that they were buying the oak groves and finding a way to dry that oak better. I mean, that's just a, a fascinating example. Thank you for sharing that. Yeah, no problem. And uh, next week, uh, we're set to close on a community of investors. Uh, we do a lot of work with dentists and doctors. We invest into medical clinics. We help doctors invest with other doctors into their clinics, but also help them invest into real estate, et cetera. Um, and next week, we're acquiring one of the largest communities in the uh, doctor space. And it'll really position us as one of the leaders in the industry um, as soon as we close on that investment. And it's taken us eight months to negotiate that investment. And we had to bring in four passive investors and put in some of our money. And it'll cost us money to run that platform every month. But it's a true choke point because once we close on that, we're not going to want to sell it to somebody else. And we'll get access to more doctor deal flow, more insights and intelligence on what's going on in the doctor space, more investor leads, um, but also for medical practices, Many of them have a lot of patients and they could get access to capital. Maybe they don't know what structures to use, but they could get access to capital if they needed it through their friends. Um, but getting access to the talent and getting actual doctors to come on as an oncologist or a dentist or an orthodontist, that's the true bottleneck of the medical practice space right now. And so having that resource to draw talent out of that community and place them within medical practices will be a really valuable use of that choke point, but there'll be many uses of it. And so with many choke points, you can use it to grow your business. And if you ever wanted to, you could sell it to somebody else who sees the value of the choke point. But along the way, it should make your business a lot stronger. So that's the first idea. And just another example of it uh, in real time. Um, another example of it is we bought 50% of an equity stake in a podcast last week that has 200 episodes. And it's one of the top three podcasts on raising capital. And we've got a lot of people that, you know, come to the family office club because they're raising capital for something. So all, nice. all day long, we're thinking about the next checkpoint or choke point and um, what we could acquire next or partner with next. So um, the second idea is to build platforms. And that's really to have um, a platform mentality in terms of your strategy. Uh, some people call it like a chessboard strategy. And it means that you're not just operating as a a conference company or a media company, you have more of a strategic approach to the industry. And I learned this from family offices the hard way. They would come to my conferences and say, oh, well, I count the number of people in the room and there's no way that you're really surviving off of just hosting conferences. So you must have some smarter ideas on how to actually do business with people here in the room, right? And back then I didn't really have any other parts of the business. So I'd kind of say, oh yeah, I'm working on a few ideas. But then I realized I need to get some ideas on the real smart use of these relationships because they saw the real value of the business was the relationships you gain by hosting the conferences, not just selling conference tickets, um, which would be kind of a non-platform way, a linear way of thinking about it. And so since then, we've developed several different divisions within our business. Uh, one example is for people raising capital, we have an investor relations marketing agency called pitchdex.com. And it's now just under uh, seven figures of revenue. We'll pass seven figures of revenue this year. 
but we do no advertising for that. We just work with people on a retainer basis who need pitch decks, videos, websites, branding, all that stuff. And it's really just makes our own marketing team excellent because our clients are really paying on a retainer basis for access to all these professionals who are really dialed in, not just on graphic design and video and websites, but specifically for investment companies and people raising capital. And another example of a division of our platform is our investment division. Um, the same investors who come to our conferences or speak on stage, we can be putting deals together with helping them set up their family offices, helping them access um, you know, real estate through either our Airbnb uh, real estate platform that you mentioned earlier, uh, investorresidences.com, or getting access to medical practice deals, um, et cetera. And so having a platform strategy means that you build a community or you build exposure and relationships. And then you don't have to just go around trying to sell a gold Rolex to everybody. You just listen to what their needs are and you say, oh, okay, um, you are an investor that just had a liquidity event. Why don't we add a lot of value to you for free? And we don't charge people anything to help them set up their family offices, connect them to people, et cetera, because we know that relationship is worth the most. And then we'll treat them very differently than someone that says, I've had my single family office for seven years and we're just looking for deal flow only in cash flowing real estate assets or only in medical clinics. Um, and all that is very different from someone who comes to us and says, oh, I manage $400 million in self-storage and I'm looking to get my pitch deck and marketing materials improved and figure out how to talk to family offices and we obviously say different things to different people. But if all we had was to sell conference tickets, then we're just pushing something on people every day versus with the platform strategy, you can be more strategic and think, what is the best business within my business that is already there and it doesn't even take extra advertising it's just working with somebody in an additional way or adding more value to a very specific type of customer maybe your most valuable type of, of customer uh, etc so we have different divisions within our business because of that and i think that's really made um, a big difference so that when COVID hit you know we had 27 live events planned but because we had diverse streams of revenue and ways to be agile you know we had our best year ever due to it versus going from 27 live events in person to zero in person, um, you know, it could have been a really tough thing. But since we had this platform approach, it allows it allowed us to kind of go through that and become stronger instead of instead of weaker. Um, but that, that's the platform strategy mindset. Well, I love what I'm hearing behind that. Mike Michalowicz, who wrote Profit First, had a very similar idea. And he talked about really listening to your best clients and then finding ways to serve them better. And that's a different strategy than just offering a low ticket, low barrier to entry offering to lots of people. Instead, you're offering higher level services to a smaller audience, but you're doing it on the basis of the relationship. And I'm hearing the same thing beneath what you're saying here with really listening, really serving people higher and better and doing more for them because you've listened and because you understand what their needs are. And you can't do that without first building a platform. So you have to have a way to to uh, bring people into the fold. I, I think you're going towards funnels next. So Russell Brunson is on my mind. But as, right. um, as he talks about, you're bringing people into the, the fold. You're going out and you're bringing people in. And then once they're in, you're finding a way to serve them better and better and better and more powerfully. And there's never ending ability to continue to serve the same people if you continue to expand 
your capabilities. So I, I love that you're talking about that platform because it's just listening to what people want, right? Right, right. Yeah, for sure. That's that's what's worked uh, well for us over the years. And, you know, might be different for different people here. Maybe only one of these three ideas someone will want to use, but maybe some of these ideas you could use in the future and you might identify some opportunity is really a choke point opportunity to obtain something that's really going to separate yourself uh, from others in the marketplace. And so um, just planting some of these ideas for when you invest in someone else's business to recognize these ideas or put them to use at different times during your, your business career. So let's go ahead and talk about funnels. Sure. And uh, Bruce, were you going to jump in and say something real quick? Well, I was just, I, I mean, all this is great. And we've already mentioned Sullivan and Dan talks about his biggest check exercise. And he, so you, you go back and look at all your clients and you, you figure out which ones are actually paying you the most for your goods and services. Now that seems obvious, but what he's also saying is that those are the people that are actually attracted to your, your values and energy. And so that's another thing that helps you uh, attract other people if you concentrate on them. And I think that's where you're coming from with your billionaires.com idea uh, also. So, And right. and the reason I, I wanted to um, jump in is because funnels bore me, Richard. Um, I, I, know they're, I know they are um, not the strategy of it, but the building of them. But that's where, that's where Rachel is and her husband are really good at making sure because because they study everything like Russell Brunson. So I think it is a good time to go. I'll just, I'll just sit here and be quiet. <laughs> <laughs> sure. Sure. Yeah. So um, funnels, I mean, I've learned about building the funnels from uh, Dean Jackson and Evan Pagan and Joe Polish and Dan Sullivan and Jay Abraham. And, um, you know, basically when you're building a marketing funnel or an investor funnel, you're really just looking at how are all the ways someone could learn that we exist add value to them, you know, mature them or develop them as a potential lead, and then build that into a ongoing business relationship where they're going to, you know, hopefully refer us people long-term, but come in the door and become a client in the first place is the most critical event. Um, and so with some people, they don't have a funnel at all and they just reach out cold. Um, and it's not super effective um, because people aren't already in a context of trust and being pre-qualified for knowing you and liking you and seeing your value. Um, other people just have a blog or a podcast, and that's it. And they build a multi-seven-figure business off of that. Um, but what I found is that if you can build a robust kind of multifaceted funnel, it works best to attract all different types of leads, and it brings in the most um, cynical or skeptical leads that may not come into your competitors that may be the most valuable. And so... Uh, oftentimes people get slowed down by all these ideas by thinking, oh, I'm not a good writer or I'm not a good speaker or I don't have time for this. Well, likely if you're looking to grow your business or your wealth, whatever you're doing now is not working perfectly well because you'd be so busy, maybe you don't have time to listen to a single podcast or maybe you just sold your business and that's not the case. But a lot of business owners here uh, know that some percentage of what they're doing is not the best use of their time. And there could be other things that their team does, even if they don't change what they do at all, to get more results out of less time. And so what I found is that if you have two people and one of them builds a strong funnel and the other doesn't, then the one is going to have much more consistent uh, client flow. And if you have a funnel that has, say, podcasts and articles and blogs at the top level, and then maybe white papers and in-depth interviews that you do, 
and then maybe you're um, putting together a little paperback book or a webinar, and then you have live events that you speak at and you record those and put them on your YouTube channel. And you have all this different type of content. Well, the more podcasts you do, then the easier it is to then give a public talk. And the more articles you write or blog posts you do, even if you're bad at writing and you can transcribe your podcast, uh, then you have all this written material. And if you have 10 or 12 white papers, you could turn it into a little book. Uh, one, one trick I've done is to give a talk with 12 PowerPoint slides. And I give that talk five or six times. And then I record it the sixth time. And each PowerPoint slide equals a chapter of a book where I'm telling a story, giving examples, avoid these mistakes, et cetera. Um, and then you have the transcription of the draft of your book done just by giving a 45 minute or a one hour talk versus writing it all from scratch. And so once you have one part of the funnel, the rest of it gets easier to build and you're way better off having just one or two things that you seem to be good at and come naturally rather than doing nothing. But the more of a funnel that you build, uh, the more that you're just going to attract business. And you see KPMG do this with writing white papers and they have people speaking at conferences. Um, you see uh, smaller companies and moderate sized companies doing this uh, a lot. And it's a very common idea in the marketing world, but outside of marketing, a lot of people don't really focus on this and don't think about it. Um, but what I found is that a lot of the most successful companies will combine these ideas of acquiring some choke points that get a lot more people into their funnel uh, or they have a platform strategy. And so with our business, we have one big funnel with our investor club. But then within that funnel, we have a smaller funnel on how to start a family office and many resources on that. We have many resources on the centimillionaire niche. We're building out our resources on billionaires. We have a lot of resources for doctors and dentists who might have different challenges and different problems and different opportunities they want to go after. But all of that is part of our one big investor club funnel. So you can have many funnels inside of your larger funnel that are all synergistic. And you can take what you learned from talking to investors here and port it over here. And it's not abandoning the niche you were in before. It's all combined to make one big funnel. And then you become well-known within your niche by adding more value than anyone else does within your area. And that's really the name of the game. It's like a, it's a competitive way to run your business. Your competitors might not like that you do all this thought leadership, um, but your potential clients really like it because you're just giving away a ton of insights and value without charging anything for it um, to begin with. And that de-risks the transaction of the relationship. Um, before COVID, I was paying you know $50,000 per year for a single mastermind group that just got together quarterly. And the reason I did that is I had listened to the podcast of the person for several years, put their ideas in practice and made money off their ideas. So really, it was free for me to pay that $50,000 because I'd already made that money off of ideas from them. So I knew it was very de-risked to go about in that transaction. And the same is true with any professional or investment advisor uh, professional, um, or even on a smaller transaction in a business. If you already get genuine value from someone before you spend any money, it makes you a lot more comfortable spending your time or money with that person. You know, it's, it's because we all need to develop a relationship and walk somebody through the normal natural path of a relationship. And I think sometimes in business, it can have, we can have this idea that I just share my offering and everyone's going to want to buy but that's not the way that it works. I mean, you need to be able to deliver value and show who you are first and get to know someone and and tell them who you are and be an actual human. And so that's a lot of what funnels are even about. I, I love the idea of being able to provide value. So many people are looking for answers or Googling for information. They're looking on podcast platforms or looking on YouTube. 
And there's so much opportunity to be able to share your knowledge and your insight and your wisdom so that you're solving problems for somebody. And you're also getting practice speaking through your ideas through that process. I I love listening to Russell Brunson as well. He's the guy who owned and created ClickFunnels. And he talks about the value of even having a podcast for somebody who's just thinking about getting started and maybe thinking, I don't have anything to share. When you look back years and years later, you're going to realize that you were practicing speaking your ideas. Even just Richard, as you were saying, practicing speaking the same PowerPoint 12 slides so that you're preparing and creating a book. There's so much value in getting started and moving something forward because then you're going to have so much more content to look back on and so much uh, practice fleshing out those ideas along the way. Right. Man, right. We could, yeah. We're almost at the top of the hour and we've only covered one of the, the three things that we wanted to discuss today. So um, no, that's, that's good. Um, let's go ahead and talk a little bit about deal structure and why you see that being so much more valuable and and necessary than just looking at what the strategy is behind a deal and why, I mean, there's so much we could talk about on this as well. Talk about deal structure though. Why is that something that's really critical if you're looking for a good investment? Yeah. Investors who are worth $30 million, $100 million plus care a lot about structure and all else equal. I believe that for my investments, uh, structure is more important than the strategy, meaning that if you look at any investment you've done, you could give and you allowed me to structure it uh, any way I wanted to, then I'd rather have something that is just an okay investment, but a really excellent structure than have a excellent investment, but the structure is kind of bad. Because if you can control the structure and customize it, which you can in direct investments when you directly negotiate deals, um, you can make it so that you have more collateral you can make it so that you get the income first. You can make it so your money comes off the table first. For that one investment we just closed, um, I put in money, the investors put in a chunk of money. But when we sell, the investors get all their money back first, and then I get my money back, and then we participate pro rata. Um, but many of the investors hadn't seen a deal like that before, but it just de-risks it for them. Um, in another uh, deal that we recently did, uh, we made it so that the investors double their money, like for, for investorresidences.com, for example, um, we're in our next fund, we're buying 10 properties in 10 different cities uh, that are all being rented out on Airbnb and 50 other short-term rental websites. And the investors double their money before we make a dollar of fees or profits. And then they get this lifetime vacation benefit on the platform. And that structure turns what could be like, oh, okay, it's interesting to invest in Airbnbs. I guess we don't have any exposure there, but instead makes it so like we're really gunning to double their money in that deal. Plus they get this long tail vacation benefit from it. And um, many investors just put capital to work and they're looking for strategies and they're not looking and collecting mental models on structures. So we're always looking for smarter structures. We use a lot of gross revenue royalty structures and deals. We look for tax efficient structures. We, um, the most valuable question an investor can ask when they're investing, because I almost always get a yes to this, is you go to a CEO who's raising capital and they're all confident in their businesses. Um, and many times they say, oh, well, you put this money up as equity or as a promissory note, et cetera. And many times they are not offering any collateral that secures my investment. And I just simply say, oh, well, um, since you run five medical clinics, are you comfortable if we're investing half a million dollars, putting up the medical um, equipment 
even if it's worth 32% of what you bought it for, and your insurance receivables that would roll in if you stopped business today and assign that collateral to us. So we're at least made whole if you go under and then we get our money back at least. We don't lose all of our money. And 80% of the time, they just say yes right away because they just told you, oh, we're not going to fail. This is going to be great. We're going to grow like this and this. And so you have make them put their money where their mouth is and put up that collateral behind your investment. And it costs nothing to ask that. But almost every time I ask it, people are like, oh, yeah, sure, we'll put up collateral. Um, but if you don't ask that, then you're doing the investment you know, without any net underneath you. Um, that's just one really quick example of how focusing on structure can really protect you from downside losses um, and help you obtain more upside in deals um, if you know what you're doing on the structure. The last example I'd give is a manufacturing company that I invested in. And what I did was structured it so I get a 1.2 times my money gross revenue royalty off the top line revenue every month. I get a wire transferred from that. Um, and then once I get 1.2 times my money back, it drops down to very little gross revenue royalty and my equity warrants go from 18% to 16%. But when they sell that manufacturing business one day, I'll get 16% of the business and that, um, that warrant does not expire and there's no way for me to get diluted. So they could raise capital five more times and I'll still get 16% of the business when they sell one day. Um, whereas if you didn't structure it that way and you got 16% equity, um, you might get dividends along the way, but you can get diluted down to 1% equity over time. So having all these tools in your toolbox on investment structure is really critical. And um, a lot of investors have a lot of work to do there on, on understanding them and, and how to use them. Mm. Hey, Richard, will you please, um, I think it'd be best coming from you and not us uh, because of disclosures, but could you uh, explain briefly about equity warrants sure. to our listeners? Yeah, sure. So um, an equity warrant or a right of participation um, is really a way to have participation in something where they're not giving you equity today. Sometimes you might be granted a warrant that could become valuable in the future that's not today. If somebody grants you equity, there might be a tax consequence of doing that. If you invest money to get a warrant, um, you have to know that that's not equity. So you don't get ongoing dividends right now. You could negotiate a gross revenue royalty. You could negotiate equity plus an equity warrant or right of participation during a future sale in the future. Um, most warrants expire at a certain time and have to be exercised at a certain price. Most make you pay a certain share value um, at that point in time for the equity you're buying. So there's many different variations on this. But the way that we have structured it and what we are trying to achieve is really when you sell your business, we want to participate in that sale. Um, and we want a big chunk for that. But along the way, you keep your profits, reinvest them for growth. We'll just participate at that end point you know, at the sale. So in our case, that's, that's why we structured it that way. Yeah. So um, once again, this is a disclosure from us. There's no recommendations here. We're not, we're not telling you should invest in things with warrants. I hate that we always have to do this. We don't know your individual situation, but uh, with warrants, which what really is, it's um, it's a it's an agreement at the very beginning of the deal that you can get more equity into the project later on. But there has to be a a triggering event to exercise those warrants, and they do. Ex and as Richard said, they do expire. And the reason people structure the deals like this. Is so that they do um, they do participate in more of the the flow cash flow uh, along the way, 
And, um, but it is a way that you can actually structure this to give a little, a little bit of more of a carrot or an incentive for a person to invest in, in a deal, um, along the way. So that's, that's real. They're really, they're really designed more as a carrot for future, for future equity. Right. Right. So Richard, as we're getting close to wrapping up, we might have to have you back on the show again to talk about niche areas of investment. Is there anything that you could say just in a minute or two about investing in niches versus just in anything and and the value of doing that? Maybe what what that might look like? Yeah, the most valuable investors that are the most effective, uh, they focus on just one or two areas of an operating business or an area in real estate where they want to play a strong offense. In their public market, wealth management stuff is pure defense. Their cash flow in real estate um, is defensive while also growing in value over the long macro. And then their operating business investments are their more aggressive offensive game. And so when you focus on a very specific area where you can add a ton of strategic value, then you're going to get to see deals first exclusively at a better valuation. You can do quicker due diligence. You can have higher conviction. And like on one deal that we're closing right now, we're getting... 5% equity, but we only have to pay for 2.5% equity. And they're just granting us advisory shares for the other half. So we're getting half off on the valuation just because we add so much strategic value to the area. And so I interpret this for myself and I believe in it so much that that's what we do as well. So we only invest in things that build our investor club within our operating business, uh, medical practices, which include dental. And those are our two operating business areas that we invest into. And then on the real estate side, we're just building out our Airbnb investment platform and fund that I mentioned, uh, investorresidences.com. And that's where all of our focus is. So we keep on getting more synergy, more intelligence, and more resources and team members who are really good at executing in those two areas in operating businesses, the investor club and medical practices, and then the one area in real estate, which is the Airbnb properties. Um, and it gives you all those benefits we just talked about of you know faster movement and higher conviction and better evaluation on things. So who should reach out to you specifically? I mean, anyone who's listening right now has gotten a lot of value and a lot of things to pursue, books to check out, resources to gather and and mental models to think about in their own business to be able to invest like the wealthy, like the billionaires. But who should reach out to you and what do you offer them when they do? Sure. Uh, I'll make this real concise since I know we're a little bit short on time here. But the number one thing is someone, a private investor who just had a liquidity event or needs to set up a family office or just wants to get a lot smarter on their direct investments. Uh, We get a ton of value to you. We have quarterly investor events that are free to come to. We help people set up family offices for free. Um, So any private investor who wants to get smarter on direct investments or running their family office would be one. Uh, Two would be any doctor or dentist who wants to get access to more medical platform medical clinic deal flow, like somebody with 14 medical clinics who needs capital to grow. And then you'll understand that investment because you're a doctor yourself. Uh, We work with over 300 doctors and dentists right now. We've invested in multiple medical clinics and would love to have you join us at our events for free as well and get to know you and and add value um, through medical clinic investments. And then the third thing would be any private investor who does not have current exposure to uh, short-term rental Airbnb type properties and would want diversified investment exposure to the short-term rental market while also being able to use those properties and have fun doing family reunions or sending their employee of the month to one of these properties, et cetera. 
And that is our investorresidences.com uh, platform. Anyone who's interested in that, they could uh, just visit that website and, um, and submit their inquiry there. And I guess um, if anyone has questions on anything I talked about today or they're needing feedback on structuring some deal that they're working on, uh, my email is just richard at investorclub.com and we're happy to be a resource to you. Thank you so much for joining us today, for sharing just a wealth of your experience, your wisdom, and just the insight that you've gained over your work with family offices and all of your research. So thank you so much, Richard. I I love hearing from you and hearing what you're working on. And it's really just a great way for us to be able to look at and say, this is something that you can model in your own life as you are continuing to build wealth and as you're continuing to um, optimize all of your finances and be in a position of maximum control. So with that, we will remind you, as we always do, success leaves clues. So model the successful few, not the crowd, and build a life and business you love. We'll see you next time. Discover the secret of how to earn a return on the same money in two places at the same time so that you can strengthen your investment returns. We've created a free guide for you that explains the top three things every investor needs their privatized banking system to do. Go to themoneyadvantage.com slash banking, put in your name and primary email address, click the send my free guide button right now, and we'll see you on the inside. Thank you for listening to the Money Advantage podcast. Today's show notes and resources are available for you on themoneyadvantage.com. If you like this episode, make sure you subscribe and leave a review. If you have any questions or desire to speak with a qualified financial professional after listening to today's podcast, we encourage you to reach out to us at hello at themoneyadvantage.com or check us out at themoneyadvantage.com. The opinions and views expressed here are for informational purposes only. This material is educational in nature and should not be deemed as a solicitation of any specific product or service. All investments involve risk and a potential loss of principal. Kalos Capital Incorporated nor Kalos Management Incorporated offer tax or legal advice. Please consult with a tax advisor or attorney for advice regarding the impact on your portfolio. Securities offered through Kalos Capital Incorporated Member FINRA, SIPC, MSRB, and Investment Advisory Services offered through Kalos Management Incorporated and Registered Investment Advisor, both located at 11525 Parkwood Circle, Alpharetta, Georgia. E3 Consultants Group is not an affiliate or subsidiary of Kalos Capital Incorporated or Kalos Management Incorporated.